You're listening to The Yoga Room with Mark Stevens, a place for exploring evocative and provocative ideas and conversations about yoga, life, myth, science, and making the world a better place for all. Welcome to The Yoga Room. My guest today is Alex Haley, whose exploration of mindfulness meditation and technology raises fascinating questions and possibilities regarding how we practice, how we teach, how we empower, and how we might otherwise share yoga and other modalities for making life better. Before fully introducing Alex, I'll provide a brief frame of reference for our conversation, starting with how, well, mindfulness practices are at least as ancient as yoga. We might consider for a moment that the very idea of mindfulness, of being conscious or aware of something, might seem to be a weird idea, a weird notion, since we're always aware of something. Um, This is consciousness is a constant, um, even if perhaps a definitive human experience. However, when we consider the qualities of mindfulness, we come immediately to the problems at the heart of yoga and meditation, which is that we humans are often confused about things. We often are suffering amidst confusing streams and floods of thoughts, stuck in rumination, stressed, anxious, caught in spirals of self-deflating reflection, of judgment, of fear, or anger, of fantasy, all the things we all might know so well, far from what we might sometimes experience as peace of mind, even clarity, or qualities of such mental stillness that seem to open portals to something truly beautiful and effably delicious, the, the, the sort of the ah moments of being. This is all a constant in the teachings on yoga and meditation from ancient times to the present, long before Patanjali summarized yoga in around 325 of the Kama era as stilling the fluctuations of the mind, even more ancient than the Buddha who came before him and certainly found in recent times and given a variety of formulations of the, sort of the whole world of, of meditation, including the now widely popular uh, mindfulness-based programs found all around the world in yoga studios and hospitals and prisons incorporations. The various techniques for cultivating peaceful, insightful, and fully awakening mindfulness are as simple as perhaps watching the breath and as complex as the prescriptions of some lineages that suggest only certain elaborate ritualized practices that might work. The techniques, the technologies, they're always developing, which can be a really wonderful, a really beautiful thing. And we can appreciate that the techniques, these techniques of all that we do in these practices are technologies, that we might consider how such things, these technologies, are changing, how we as human beings are manifesting them, including digital technologies that are more and more coming into play in this realm. At the outset of this, this might feel to some like a disturbing thing, that we would somehow bring digital technology to things like, well, yoga or our awareness or consciousness. But let's just say that by virtue of listening to this podcast, you're engaged presently in a form of digital technology. If you've ever taught or observed a yoga class online, whether it's on Zoom or whatever other platform, you and others have been involved in utilizing digital technologies. Now, if you are playing music on your phone or pad in your yoga class as a teacher or listening to it, you also are involved in digital technology. But I'll suggest that it potentially goes much farther. And how much farther it goes, I don't have the full perspective on. But my guest today has a 
pretty strong grasp on where we are and where it all could be going in ways that might seem troubling, but I would encourage you to listen and consider how it all also might be highly liberating and empowering. Alex Haley is an assistant professor and mindfulness program lead at the University of Minnesota's Center for Spirituality and Healing, where he teaches undergraduate and graduate courses, assists with clinical research, and helps support mindfulness programming for public, nonprofit, and for-profit organizations. His areas of study include mindfulness, embodiment, behavioral change, and designing both online and virtual reality learning environments, including with the University of Minnesota's Interactive Visualization Lab, which is amazingly using interactive computer graphics, data processing algorithms, and radical new computer input-output technologies with new understandings of the complex interconnected relationships of human beings and computers. Alex completed a four-year training program through the Insight Meditation Society, uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and the Insight Retreat Center under the guidance of his mentors, Joseph Goldstein and Guy Armstrong. He also studied uh, with the MBSR program with John Gabbitson, and he's been trained at the Center for Mindfulness, the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute, and the Coaches Training Institute. Something I also want to underline is that Alex is a co-founder of Offering Tree, which is a, an online platform for wellness professionals with educational blog, blogs on the sort of business admin side of what we do as yoga teachers and other wellness professionals. It also has a directory that one can just simply sign up with. It is a public benefit corporation, I want to underline. And they also have public events. And we'll look to discuss the Offering Tree as a part of this episode. So I want to, I want to give that some, some attention here as well. Alex is the co-author of a number of research articles, some of which we'll discuss today, especially regarding virtual reality and, I hope, therapeutic yoga applications and other mindfulness practices. Alex Haley, welcome to the Yoga Pod- Room podcast. Thanks, Mark. Delighted to be here. I would love to simply start, as we often do, with some of your more personal story, and especially kind of the the not entirely unique, but but not at all common combination of qualities that you have in your life, and how you came to explore so deeply in both mindfulness and digital technology. Yeah, happy to share. So I'd say my first real introduction to uh, contemplative practices, yoga, meditation, uh, came through my parents. So my mom was a long-term uh, meditation practitioner um, I even have early memories uh, as a kid, even before getting into Buddhist meditation, going to a Quaker camp and doing things like Del Sunday and um, being quiet in the woods and really connecting with that sort of sense of one's, uh, that inner movement. Um, and that was really kind of my introduction on the contemplative side. I was also fortunate that when I was in high school, I had a math teacher who started every calculus lesson with two minutes of meditation. And that had a profound impact on me um, because I was hearing it not just from uh, my mom, who naturally, being a child, I had some resistance to that, right? It's not every day that you want to take your mom's advice when you're trying to kind of uh, individuate as your own as your own being. And so hearing it from multiple sources along the way helped me to come to my own terms, at least on the contemplative side. At the same time that I was being introduced to contemplative practices, I was attending retreats and studying, um, you know, the kind of the suttas and uh, really immersing myself in that. I was also on a very traditional path. So I uh, had studied um, 
you know, in high school chemistry, and I thought I was going to be a chemist when I grew up. Um, I had um, immersed myself in economics, so that was my undergrad degree was in uh, economics. And I also had spent a lot of time uh, in the business community, so business and legal community. I eventually went on to get um, my MBA and JD. And what I found throughout both of these paths was that I was sitting squarely in the middle as a translator. So when I would hang out with my uh, contemplative community, um, they would look at all of my friends and colleagues on the business and legal side and say, well, those people need to get a life. And when I was hanging out with my business and legal folks, they would look back at the contemplative folks and they would you know, kind of chide me a little bit and say, well, they need to get a job. And I would say, you two do not communicate at all. And there's a lot that you have to learn from each other. And yet the, the connection points, the, the uh, places of translation are so few and far between. And that ultimately led me to what I'm doing now, which is uh, cognitive science, because science was the bridge. It was the sort of Rosetta Stone that I could use to help translate between worlds. And so um, the way I kind of uh, think of myself these days is I, I'm just a, a translator um, between these different worlds. And I'm always trying to find connections, um, encourage conversation and encourage sharing uh, across these seemingly separate uh, areas. I'm curious in that earlier period in your life, whether in the inspiration of your parents, your mom, uh, hanging out at your Quaker camps, being in the woods. Um, what was it like? What were you sensing? I mean, as a young man or as even a boy, what were you experiencing that gave you a sense that this is something that's special, important, curious about, that, that motivated you to go farther with it? Yeah, the biggest thing is just recognizing that um, human experience uh, – cannot be condensed into um, thinking about human experience. And so I was being trained academically to hone my mind, to really, uh, you know, get precise in how I communicate, how I think about things, you know, learning all these very sophisticated uh, tools and mathematics to be able to, you know, describe uh, what was happening in, you know, the natural world. And yet my subjective experience was always, it's indescribable. There's this aspect of my lived experience, which defies whatever I think about what my lived experience is, whatever the, my own self story is, whatever I'm telling myself or telling somebody else, it never actually fully can capture the reality of this indescribable experience that we call life, which is a great mystery. And that has always stayed with me. And it has been uh, the motivating force in my life to provide greater access and greater uh, opportunities for uh, others to connect with that sense, to really, um, I'd say, uh, you know, revel in the mystery of what it means to be alive. It's, um, I appreciate that, uh, at least I gather from your biography that you've spent some time in the Northeast. And if, if you have, and if you're around the Massachusetts and all, there's a tradition there of the American transcendentalists of Ralph Waldo Emerson and, and Thoreau, who, I love the story that Thoreau, in the middle of the 19th, early 19th century, he walks off into the woods for a couple of years and hangs out and builds this little retreat hut and all that it basically follows the guidelines of the Bhagavad Gita. And he has Charles Wilkins' transliteration of that book with him as he goes out there. It's really the first American yoga retreat. But he's in nature. He's in the woods. He writes about this on, on, Wal on Walden Pond, of course. I see you nodding your head as we talk. And so... 
I'm just fascinated by, in this experience that you're describing, this kind of ineffable, this indescribable experience that you come to, think that many find themselves coming to in these, in these practices, mm, that sense, you say, of life, of, like some would say it's of nature, or of God, or of true self, or, or, or. And I just would love to kind of plumb that with you a little bit, tease that out a little bit more, like what, what's in that for you? if you're open to being sort of more personal in that way. Oh, happy to, happy to share. I mean, I'd say there's so many facets and dimensions of it. I would say the one recurring truth that I have had in my life is that whenever I think I've got it, I don't, I don't got it. I don't have it. And that uh, kind of living into the question, if we you know talk about Relka and others, that concept of being able to live the question itself or, you know, the often I think overly used cliche of, uh, you know, the, it's it's the process, not the product, which is how this is often condensed within, uh, you know, the business world. But they're all pointing to this idea of this sense that um, we're more than what we um, what we may tell ourselves or think or have been conditioned or even encountered in our life. We're always more than that, and that the uh, I think you know, looking at Buddhism, one radical definition of freedom is simply a mind that keeps expanding until there's no boundaries. And so, and, and mind being used in a very specific sense, I don't mean it in the Western sense, I mean it in much more of the Buddhist um, and Asian sense of chitta, which is the mind heart. So it's not this kind of dualistic thinking of, you know, mind, heart and body or these separate things. It's just, it's actually the freedom that comes from a heart and mind, um, that has, uh, uh, it's not confined by the limitations, right? And um, uh, one of my mentors who was uh, a Zen practitioner for many, many, many years, and uh, he would always talk about uh, knowing don't know. It's that process of don't know mind, but we're knowing don't know. And so it's in that state that there's so much possibility, so much potential. The minute that we know something, then we have already we've locked it into something that we think, okay, this doesn't require further curiosity, further investigation or further feeling into. It's like, I know that I'm done. I can put that aside. And I think it's constantly reopening that. And, and the, the last uh, influence, if you'll permit me, was my dad, who was a classic scholar. And so he always, when I was growing up, was talking about the Greek myths. He did a lot of translation of Greek and Latin. And um, so I, I just remember what so fascinated me about these early Greek myths was that they were alive. There were these stories that had, uh, that opened up the question, right, through the myth, rather than closing down the question into some distilled, you know, this is the lesson that's to be taken. The myth was always alive. It was always an inquiry or an invitation to step in. And so that's always stayed with me. And um, I found it true in my own life, which is why I've oriented almost all of my life energy around um, kind of aligning with this, this as best as I understand it. I, I love this. It's kind of a dialectic of, of know and don't know. And, and also with myth and knowledge, we see Aristotle, he said, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And there's a suggestion that learning is infinite. There's, there's, there's no end to what we can know. And at the same time, I think that we want in this moment to have some explanations we can kind of go with in the moment to have a sense of like what's really real in this moment how do i you know what how do i make choices how do i make decisions and there's a tendency in this world to want to hold fast to pat explanations and not and there's a lot of fear in the unknown and a myth certainly can fill that space in 
that idea of living in the mystery, being in the questions, living our questions is a really powerful one. And so I want to bring a circle around here back to what you said about your sense of being a translator between this, across this divide. Um, and I'm really curious, what are the points of resistance that you're finding there on both sides of the divide that you're attempting to navigate, negotiate, and, and bridge or, or translate? Yeah, I'd say the, the most sticky, uh, persistent challenge, and I include myself in this, so full transparency and full disclosure that I am, I am also a work in progress, is how conditioned um, myself and others, whether it's talking in the, the business community, the contemplative community, or even the research community, how conditioned we are uh, to understand um, experience mediated through thought, mediated through uh, emotional texture of experience, as opposed to being able to come back and stay with just the um, the actual mysterious felt sense experience, embodied experience of the moment and how quick we are to um, pop up into the old coconut and narrate, interpret, um, you know, have a discourse, a dialogue. And it's that disconnection, which um, I think has been the, the most sticky for me, which is why I've put so much of my energy into this area called embodied cognition, which is actually its whole existence is, uh, this may be a little heretical, but I don't think so. Its whole existence is a counterpoint. It exists because it is a counterpoint or a counter argument to this idea that the mind um, in the Western sense is like a computer. And really, you know, we're just, our brain is kind of the hardware and our sense of self and our thoughts and emotions is simply the program running on that hardware, much like your computer uh, is running an operating system. And embodied cognition says, whoa, 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 You're, wait a minute, that's way too simplistic. Actually, it's a much more complex understanding, which is that uh, the body itself uh, has its own way of understanding the world, its own language, um, and that that's extremely important. And for me, the connection or the tie-in, uh, particularly for Buddhism, is there's this um, very famous um, you know, discourse in the suttas where um, the Buddha is talking to uh, somebody, it goes by the name of Rohitasa, who's called the Skywalker. Uh, and this idea is that Rohitasa comes to the Buddha and says, you know, I'm paraphrasing wildly, so please forgive me, you know, venerable one, um, I have the ability to, to leap, uh, you know, cross thousands and thousands of miles and journey endlessly and I've been doing this and I found no end. There's no end to the universe. You know, where is the end? And the Buddha says, it's in this fathom long body. It's in this fathom long body that one finds the end. And Rahitosa, Rahitosa uh, who is the, translated, so that's why he's uh, this. And actually, uh, it's interesting, a little side note, uh, Rahitosa is, is said to neither, uh, is gender fluid. So it's not sure if he, she, but it, it's his being, Rahitosa. And so um, says, is just so surprised and stunned by the Buddha's answer, you know, because it had never occurred that in all this journeying, there's never any end. And to me, that's a powerful, powerful way of, uh, of capturing this idea that the mind that ruminates endlessly, there is no end because the mind can always in its sort of untethered, uh, not connected to a sense of an incarnate being that's right here, 
it will always continue to move its motion. And so it's this paradox of stillness and movement, right? It's the paradox of uh, still flowing water. And it's only in the union of the paradox that we find some resolution. Um, and the, that resolution is felt. It's not a resolution that is thought. It's a resolution that one recognizes that one actually um, has a sense of connectedness to. And for me, that also then deeply connects it to a sense of ethics. So that's a lot. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of pause, but that's how I at least hold it. In some ways, teasing this out a little bit, the idea of connectedness implies separation. It implies a philosophical dualism that somehow the mind or consciousness is separate from the body. We see this in various strands dating back to early Greeks and Indians and Chinese and other ancient notions of, of, of uh, whether it's animal spirits or, or deities or God consciousness or something else that, that comes to connect with human beings or how human beings come to connect with rather than this being, let's say, an inherent resident part of an innate organic human being who in whose organic being there's this capacity for self-reflective consciousness, which isn't necessarily confined to the gray mat, gray white matter of the brain, but can, as I'm hearing you say, be embodied in the sense of there are, well, let's just say there are clear instances of intelligence in every cell of our being, especially certain with neural capabilities, such as the serotonin in your gut that is carrying out intelligent, you know, operations in attaching certain digestive enzymes to certain, certain food particles, intelligence in there, but other aspects of intelligence, not just within the gray matter of the brain. But I'm a little bit concerned sometimes, Alex, that the gray matter, the gray white matter of the brain gets, is getting dissed a little bit here. And whether it's, you know, the work of, uh, of Vanderkolk or a variety of other people in the somatics and all who, or Stanley Kellerman's uh, emotional uh, anatomy, um, that there's a, a bit of a, of a rush away from the brain. Uh, and I'm going to suggest that this brain thing is not separate from all this, this larger thing. It's all part of this whole organic human being. And we really need to look closely. I lo I'm loving uh, the neurophilosophy work right now of, of Patricia Churchland and her work on touching a nerve is one of her more recent books. She's a, in her 80s now, an emeritus in neuroscience at UC San Diego. But, you know, how to say, that is... On, we're, we're seeing increasingly in neuroscience and, and connecting it to yoga and other meditation practices and all, the idea that, you know, polyvagal theory, vagus input, is more significant in affecting heart rate and experience of being in the moment, in contrast to what's sometimes referred to as top-down processing, what's occurring in the cerebral cortex and other mechanisms of the brain, hippocampus, particularly in the hippocampus, that affect how we feel and how we experience things in this moment. I'm curious to sort of bridge this other divide, if you will, another dualism where we're separating the body and the brain in yet another way and say, how are you looking at these questions of neural intelligence and embodiment? How are you connecting your sense of cognitive science with ideas of embodied practice? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a big question, so I'm not sure I'll be able to you know, tie it with a neat little bow. Um, I can just tell you kind of where my where I am in my own journey and process at this moment. So I would say that um, you're right to flag that there is this um, polarity between, you know, well, if I'm going to be um, really advocating for embodiment, then somehow it means that I'm 
getting rid of the significance or importance of the brain and the neuroarchitecture and all of this. And then the other camp being, well, no, you know, mind is simply an extension of the brain. And it's actually, we look at it as sort of um, in a classical sense of this, it's the components, the, the mechanisms of the brain then produce consciousness as the byproduct from uh, you know, what's actually all these things that are happening that we can measure and look at and observe. And therefore, the body is simply that which supports this higher order functioning. Both of those, I think, are too simplistic. I don't think that it's only half the story, which is what I, uh, the way I interpret what you were just sharing. And I would say that um, the way that I sort of enter this um, debate is to say that um, whether it's top down or bottom up, um, we are incarnate beings. So it's true that we have sentience. It's true that we have um, intelligence. We have this incredibly sophisticated uh, gray matter um, that allows for things like self-reflection and you know problem solving and all of these different amazing things that we're able to do. At the same time, it's not as though we are some abstract floating consciousness. We are incarnate. So it's situated, it's in situ to say, it's embedded within the environment, within the organism and with whatever, however you want to define mind. And you know, I don't think we even need to go down that rabbit hole because the definition of mind itself is, uh, is so, uh, can be so complex. But suffice it to say, I think for our present purposes that it's the union of these, it's environment, it's mind, its body and it's it's all of this interacting that then becomes a very rich um, a rich inquiry and I see this so much um, I actually had the really good fortune recently to sit um, a, a retreat an online retreat so speaking to technology uh, with uh, a, a Chinese Chan master his name was Guo Gu uh, and um, an early Buddhist um, you know scholar and just amazing uh, practitioner and uh, who has uh, been reading the Pali text, the uh, Chinese texts and the Sanskrit texts and looking at where there are discrepancies in this kind of comparative literature. Um, that's Venerable Analio and he's, uh, he's incredible and sort of the leading preeminent early Buddhist um, practitioner and scholar. And I was listening to a dialogue between these two, this Chan master and this early Buddhist uh, master. Um, and what emerged from it uh, again was this um, recognition that um, it's it's not that um, it's not that we need to do more separating and sort of like splitting of things and dividing them into different categories. We could say, oh, you know, maybe Chan is better than early Buddhism. No, early Buddhism is the vehicle that really you know they were they said that's too that's that's just a uh, that's not going to get you anywhere. That's just going to get you uh, into these debates that are not so useful. Uh, but what is so useful is uh, to recognize the potential or the possibility uh, for each of us that we have, uh, in essence, this birthright. And this birthright, um, if I were to borrow from a famous um, uh, uh, Chan teaching, is that it's as though we are looking outside at the world through a window, right? And we see that oh, the world, it's out there, it's all this. And then we look back through the same window and we realize that there's actually in the room itself, it's just a room. And then we say, well, what about this, this plane of glass, you know, that's separating the outside world and the inside world? 
And then we start to see that actually so much of what's on the glass itself are just distortions. They're things uh, that we've come to believe or questions that we haven't yet asked or ways that we haven't yet. Um, pa- the, one of the um, more uh, maybe simplistic ways to think of this is it's like there's strategies to navigate life that haven't served us and they've already uh, outlived their usefulness. For our, So our task is to scrub the window a little bit and then let go of those strategies that no longer serve us. And um, so that's, for me, what I took away so much from this back and forth, this weekend of practices and discussion, you know, from uh, these really deep teachings in early Buddhism, as well as in uh, Chan, uh, that it really comes back to this essential question, if we get back to Relka, living the question, and that in that in of itself, is so much more rich than some idea that we have about it's this or that. So um, again, maybe overly simplistic, but we can think about it as splitting and categorizing and, you know, putting into buckets or bins, which is what the mind does so well, right? It's a function of the mind to be able to categorize, uh, to categorize, to compare, to evaluate, to analyze. Um, at the same time, there's a, a tremendous value in being able to say, well, what if I don't necessarily strengthen that tendency? What if I actually look to bring things together? Um, and bring it together, not just from mediated through thought, mediated through the stories, but mediated through experience itself. And I find that in the uh, that mediation and experience itself, that in the let's call them embodied practices of yoga, involving postural practices, asana, pranayama practices, that there's another sort of perspective, another prism through which we're considering well the windows the windows of experience in this, and that what by feeling inside in any different particular form, any different moment, we're sensing the environment, the inner and the outer environment, as we're sensing ourselves and being present in it, that is tuned in, attuned to what we are feeling, we can make the slightest, simplest little self-adjustments or movements to shift what we're sensing, to sense the sensations, and in that to be present to what we're experiencing, to notice the ways that our mind might go somewhere else and just in simply recognizing that to recognize that our mind, well, has gone somewhere else, but then to come back, to come back to the immediate sensations in our physical being, to our sensory apparatus, if you will. And most, I think, critically in this as the, as the bridge is the breath. And that as we breathe, I find that we feel more deeply and more clearly. The deeper we breathe, the more consciously we breathe. And by virtue of doing, let's say, an infinite array of postures, the Pradipika suggests 840,000 of them, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, classic 15th century work on physical yoga, that each of these different postures are as though so many different windows onto the experience of our lives, the experience of our being, through which we can experience ourselves in that unique moment, in that moment, in that way, and get insights into ourselves to discover anew what we gravitate toward, what we resist, what causes us stress, what makes us feel more peaceful, what gives us more of a sense of wholeness. And little by little, we start to get this sense of being able to experience in the simplest ways, including simply sitting, being more aware of the whole of it all, that it's not just a thinking mind or a feeling body, but an experiencing organic human being that is awake with consciousness and just on that there's this story quite well known in buddhism not so well known in the yoga realm about uh these villagers uh uh uh, hanging out one day and noticing this incredible energy coming towards them and and they walk towards the edge of the village and they they see this 
this entity coming towards them, and they they cautiously approach, and and it kind of looks like they don't they don't, they don't know what it is. And they say, you know, what are you? Some kind of a of a of a god or a deity? And he says, this creature, this being says no. And, and they say, are you just some kind of a trickster, a magician? And he says, no. And he kind of has the form of a man. And they say, are you a man? And he says, no. And I said, well, what are you? He says, I'm awake. And I'll actually just suggest that that's much of the practice that we're doing here, is waking up. How do we most wake up? Alex, you're doing amazing work around VR, uh, virtual reality technologies. And that seems like, for many, a sudden run, escape, jump away from what we've been talking about, about mindfulness, about being present, about being within one's heart. Virtual reality, virtual reality and mindfulness meditation or virtual reality for therapeutic applications for people on ventilators and a variety of other such applications. Please help us make a shift here to talking. And we can wind back to all these other questions, but I would love to learn more about what you're doing with virtual reality and other technologies. Yeah, it's a great, uh, I think it is a, a great question to ask. How does this connect and what is the the intersection? Uh, one, if again, you'll permit for you just a second, one little addendum for the story about meeting the Buddha on the road. Um, in uh, What I appreciate is that in that original description, at least the first time the Buddha encounters somebody and sort of the awakened one, it ends with the person saying good day. And then the little footnote is, and left by another way. And it's so short and brief, but what it tells me is that actually the person was like, oh, okay, thanks. Couldn't quite take in or comprehend what was being pointed to. And so left by a different path. And I just, that for me has always been a sense of humor, but also a sense of encouragement for the work and, and what is trying to be pointed at that, you know, it's not, it, it's not, um, it's not so easy and not everyone is going to gravitate or resonate or, or be interested in it. And that's okay. Uh, it doesn't mean that the question itself isn't important. Um, so, in terms of in terms of VR and mindfulness, um, the uh, little context. So, I've always been um, a tech geek. I've loved technology ever since I was little, and I continue to love it. Um, and I also recognize its limitations. So, I've seen with friends and family, uh, you know, they'll describe going to bed with their phones on and then being abruptly woken up in the middle of the night to little dings. And I think, why? Why? There's an off button, right? You need to know the power of the off button. And so I've lived with uh, the joys and the sorrows of uh, this technological age that we live in. Um, and I would say that uh, we, whether we like it or not, and are willing to uh, embrace it or not, um, the world is um, rapidly, rapidly um, evolving, as it always has and it always will, but it's, it's evolving in the direction of this um, human machine, machine, human. And it may even in our lifetimes get to the point where human and machine become merged into one entity. Don't know yet, but there's a lot of work and research that's being done on the interface of uh, what's uh, euphemistically called human enhancement. Um, and this idea of actually embedding hardware technology into the human body in various ways. And th this, you would have seen articles about this. You know, there were some early adopters that had little chips embedded in their wrists that could quickly give you biometric things, or, you know, you could embed a phone in your, your inner ear so you don't need a cell phone anymore. So there are some, you know, some communities that are early adopters in this space. Uh, for me, though, the question is that um, virtual reality actually is the technology that is closest uh, in my mind um, to this experience that we call uh, life. Because what it's doing is it's actually um, a simulation 
machine, if you will, but it's an embodied simulation machine. And the reason that it's embodied is because VR is looking at, okay, visual, it's looking at auditory, it's looking at sensory through haptic technologies. It's even looking at, um, you know, tastes and smells in these wild and, and, you know, interesting ways. And the whole thrust of what it's doing is around um, this area that we would uh, refer to as immersion and this, uh, which is uh, this quality of, uh, really feeling as though you're there, that you're in this environment. And so as a technology, um, there's actually a lot of overlap uh, between what um, computer scientists have started to understand within virtual reality and these thousands of year old teachings in Buddhism. So uh, to give you one example, uh, there was a little study that was done um, not too long ago where they hooked up a, um, this was actually augmented reality. And so just to clarify what I mean by that, augmented reality is where you overlay digital information into what we would think of as the real world. And it's sort of like a mashup between the real world and this digital world that's being uh, overlaid on top of it. So there's a little study that was done where they um, put you into this environment and they showed you um, this representation of uh, of a vase and they um, actually had you kind of trace the curvature of the vase, you know, and you would see that digitally as you were tracing the curvature of the vase. And then they asked you a simple question and, and you would, as part of this, the last little bit is you reached your hand into this thing that you couldn't see and you had, so you could feel it, right? So there was something that you were feeling as you were tracing it, but visually what you were seeing is you were seeing your finger going over the curvature of a, of a vase, a flower vase. And at the end of it, they would say, okay, well, do, you know, what was your experience of this? Do you think, was this curved? Was this straight? Was this whatever? And everybody would report this was, this was curved. And they said, okay, you're sure that this, this is curved. And they would say, yes, this is, I can tell you without a doubt, this is curved. And then of course, the big reveal, they would lift up the box and there you would see a straight non-curved surface. And what they were pointing was that the visual so dominates that when we get visual information about curvature, even though our texture, our haptic or tactile is telling us that this is straight, our visual overrides and we convince ourselves that no, this surface is actually curved when in fact it's straight because the visual is predominating uh, so much of our experience. And so um, VR researchers have a whole way of describing and looking at these questions and exploring them, which again, ties to me so much in my own experience in these contemplative traditions about, well, how many times do I go out through my eyes or go out through my ears into experience and start labeling and narrating and telling me all this stuff. And I've actually left that sort of unentangled knowing and I've gone out and gotten tangled. And so it, there's so many crossovers in this way. And the part that so fascinates me is to what extent is VR then a technology that may provide a new access point, new accessibility for being able to train uh, in ways that we might not even know. And some classic examples of this, you, you mentioned the work of people that are in the ICU. You know, there's a known phenomenon of when you're in the ICU and if you're intubated in the ICU, um, that's a traumatic experience. And particularly with all the beeping and the wires and, you know, you can't go anywhere and you're just there in the ICU. So what about if we were able to bring in technology that um, allowed you to not have to be um, traumatized uh, to with that experience in those environmental uh, things where you don't have a lot of agency, you don't have a lot of choice or control. And so I worked with a dear friend and colleague to kind of explore this. We brought in what are called... Um, uh, blue blue scenes and green scenes, so forest-based environments and um, 
these kind of blue spaces, which are water-based environments. And then we were uh, kind of did this very first feasibility and pilot study looking at, um, you know, how would, uh, how might this work in, a, in an ICU um, space where people are going through very uh, traumatizing experiences. And the same thing with kids in hospitals that can't go outside for various issues, you know, if they're uh, not allowed to go outside because of uh, immunocompromised, uh, uh, you know, concerns. So lots of different applications and potential. And um, it's not without its challenges, right? I often get asked the question, well, now, wait a minute, you know, isn't it better to just sit with your eyes closed and, and be with your own immediate experience? And I would say, yeah, that's absolutely great. And this is just another potential access point. So, Indeed, that would have been one of my follow-up questions. And, I, and, and it's, it, my questions are often those I'm anticipating others might wish to ask, not just the ones that I would have for myself. There's, uh, for many, a, a, a reaction, it's kind of a, a, an unconsidered reactivity to ideas of technology. And especially when it touch some, touches something that they might feel is just incredibly personal or sacred or something that is in that realm of the heart and consciousness. And then someone comes along and wants to write an algorithm to relate to that. And it's like, please, just, you know, let me be in my peace or on my cushion or in the woods or whatever it is to experience these moments, to be in these practices. I'm with you. I can imagine someone. I've had many friends who've been at times in intensive care units, who've been on ventilators, who've had other physical conditions in the midst of chemotherapy or whatever it is, who've been unable to walk out into the woods, who've had a variety of things going on where I can imagine this being a beneficial technology for them to more easily come into certain kinds of experiences. And if, let's just say as yoga teachers, we often offer our students a prop like, you know, consider using the strap or consider for some people sitting in a chair or consider for some people sitting on a block or whatever that prop happens to be. It's a technology. And I'd like to suggest that um, we consider that there are other such technologies that, that can get at this. Um, the idea of immersion is a fascinating one now, especially in the wake of, uh, well, with COVID and the pandemic, uh, so much of yoga has gone, yoga and other practices have gone online of physical practices and the idea for many the challenge for many teachers i know this personally is how do you create an immersive experience how do you maximize the sense that you are actually together as a group and i'm curious about your further thoughts on that on on immersion qualities in for example group instruction or one-on-one -on -one instruction yeah um i'd say the shortest answer i could give you is if you want to make it more immersive you need to mimic actual human behavior and i can explain that and unpack that in many many different ways um, so um, in my own teaching experience right when i first moved over to teaching entirely on zoom and kind of multiple formats retreats also academic courses um, i at first had made i think the fairly common mistake of uh, just, okay, I'm going to get on class. We're all going to get on there and then we'll kind of start teaching. But what I realized is that I had failed to actually include um, that natural part of human behavior that we all do, um, but often it goes unnoticed. So if I'm teaching in person, I'm usually at the class five to 10 minutes before it starts and students don't arrive precisely 
by just magically apparating into the space. They actually arrive at different times and waves and we smile and say hello. And there's this sort of uh, connection. There's this quality of human interaction that happens. And then only at that point do we then segue into the whatever teaching or conversation or discussion that we're going to have. And the same is true at the end of class. So rather than me just sort of disappearing in a flash by hitting a button, there is a natural people sort of, you know, slowly getting off or they have different things or saying goodbye or saying, well, I have a question. Can I talk to you? And I, I, I'm sad to say I was a little slow on the uptake. It took me a while to realize that actually I needed to, to book more time on the front end than the back end because this was an example of actually mimicking what we do as human, human behavior. And so the technology, um, you know, makes it, it can make it more challenging, but it can also afford um, new possibilities and opportunities. So uh, I, you know, an example of um, my um, daughter who is uh, almost five, she was taking a music class. It totally shut down because of COVID and they had to reimagine how are we going to do music? You know, they had all these little kids together and they were going to, do music. And so what they did is they came up with these very simple musical things that you could uh, build at home. And they had a couple of things that they could send, you know, for each kid to, to just practice. And then they also discovered that they could open it up to grandparents all around the country who couldn't otherwise come to this music lesson, but now could because of the technology. And so actually the family connection allowed for something that didn't exist prior for some of these grandparents who could never come to their grandkids music class but for the technology and so i think it's it's so easy and i i will often try to catch myself in this and to think about technology in terms of what's lost it's harder to think about technology in terms of what might we gain what might be new that we haven't previously considered what assumptions have we made that we might need to re-examine uh, in in light of this particular technology that we're considering. And for me, that, again, has been an aspect of living into the question, right? It's so easy for me to just take the assumption and say, well, it's worse than it's always going to be worse than being in person. When in fact, there's all these assumptions that I've taken into this new technology that I need to start to reexamine. And when I do, a whole new world of possibility and potential comes up. The last example I'll give you is that I recently was sitting um, an online retreat. This was a joy for me because I got to, rather than be teaching, I was on the participant side. And at the end, uh, there was an opportunity to debrief with everyone that was on this retreat. And I was part of the virtual retreat. So there was an in-person part where everyone was gathered in person. And then there was this virtual component where all of us that were virtual were watching the hall. We were there for the talks. We were logging in for the practice sessions. And at the end, there was this little debrief uh, from all of us that were virtual and, it, you know, asking about how this was. And the theme that jumped out again and again was, you know, people saying, well, I know that I'm uh, kind of fell into different camps. One of them was, well, I know that I'm in an age now where I can't travel. I can't do it because I can't see very well or I can't move very well. So I can't actually I'm, I know that I'm never going to be back in that meditation hall, even though I've been there for so long. And yet I now have a way to continue to belong and participate. I can actually do this. I can be there. And it has so much meaning for me because I have a connection with that meditation hall. The other camp that it fell into tended to be, um, you know, people that had a family, right? They couldn't leave because of family obligations or they had a health challenge. They were recovering from, you know, COVID or had long COVID. And they, there were all these reasons why it wasn't accessible for them to be there in person. 
at this retreat. And yet they were saying, but for this option, I never would have been able to participate. And so again, that highlights to me uh, that it becomes another access point. It becomes another potential, but we have to really be willing to examine our, um, our stubborn assumptions. At least that's how I think of it for myself. I don't want to say for anyone else, my own stubborn assumptions about what's better, what's worse, which again, is just an aspect of preferencing. I think I have some stubborn assumptions uh, still. Several years ago, I was on the Yoga Alliance Standards Committee. There were eight of us. Um, first time they had a standards committee to try to re- make the standards stronger and clearer. I'm not sure that we were all that successful. But let me just say that in that, we the question of online uh, courses came up. And there was a teacher, Muggs McConnell. She's a wonderful yoga teacher in Canada, in British Columbia. Um, she pointed out that some of the students, the, the, the Canada is a very large ter- uh, uh, geographical territory, and that some you know villages are hundreds of kilometers away from the nearest yoga studio. And the idea that people come, could so easily come to a workshop was just unrealistic. And it would seem that at least in certain to- with certain topics, such as lectures on philosophy, a presentation on basics of anatomy, that one could effectively present a lecture as one might now over Zoom. And I was like, okay, I can can go there and indeed those are the areas where yoga alliance started to loosen up earliest around online guidance but then it came to matters of let's say tactile guidance giving hands-on adjustments trauma aware trauma sensitive sometimes not appropriate to give at all or even offer because of the context and all of the condition of a person the intentions of a person but many many types of yoga and many instances of yoga there's a lot of value in tactile guidance and i'm like like teaching massage therapy, I'm like, how are you possibly going to begin to give a hand, teach the subtlety, the nuance of hands-on adjustments and contact over the internet? I mean, come on, please. And then, well, a couple of months ago, Alex, you and I had a conversation, and you started to tell me something about this that opened up my eyes a little bit more, nudged me a bit away from my stubbornness on this, this question. I've been teaching this online, by the way, since covid and I feel somewhat hamstrung in doing so, in part because of the lack of quality, immersive technologies, haptic technologies and all. Please help us understand where we are, where this might be going, if you will. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, – I think you're right to, to point to this distinction. The bridge that's hard to cross um, in these um, human-machine, machine-human interaction, just like what we're doing right now, even in this technology – uh, is particularly in the realm of um, haptics, right? Where there's also challenges in terms of other um, sense-based things like, uh, you know, smell or taste. But I can I'll put those aside for a moment because there is technology actually working in that area. But in the area of haptics, um, there is a lot that's coming. And Could you please explain, just define um, haptics for for our listeners, for yes. a moment, please. Thank yeah, you. Hap- haptics is. Uh, thank you. Yes, um, I'll try to avoid jargon. Um, haptics is an area of research in computer science that basically tries to mimic the sense of uh, touch, and it can be uh, used in different ways. It's not just touch, but it's giving you real time feedback that can be felt. And so haptics can be can take many different forms. It doesn't have to be just. Um, uh, haptics that are, are kind of applying a force that you can feel, or, you know, you can, um, it can actually be haptics around temperature. So you can feel heat, you can feel coolness. So these are all forms, but it's giving you sensory input. That's maybe the best way to think about haptics as opposed to visual input or auditory input. It's giving you more of that body-based sensory felt experience kind of input. 
And there's many different modalities uh, of how you might go about doing that. And there's been a lot of research that's been done in the VR community for, for many, many years, even dating back to, you know, like the late 60s, early 70s, that was looking at early iterations of this. Um, the, uh, the What's coming in the near future is um, a really a... Um, rapid advancement in this haptics technology. I'll give you an example uh, that's right now, present day, um, which will probably be relate relatable to many of um, the listeners uh, of this um, podcast, is if you think about the um, smart home gym equipment that you may, you know, you've, I'm sure you've seen the advertisements on TV, if it's Peloton or Tonal, which is the like body workout thing where you have it on and so like shows you representation. Um, there's also things like rowing machines. Nordic Track has a rowing machine. Um, what this technology is doing is it's actually uh, a first step in this direction. So if you if you've ever you know done a live rowing class or you've maybe seen it or whatever, seen a video, the way that it works is actually there's technology built into the hardware that when the instructor who is I don't know thousands of miles away somewhere. Uh, is in the midst in this live session rowing with you and says, okay, now we're coming into the hard part. We're coming into the deep water. You're going to feel more resistance. At that exact moment, a series of magnets in my rowing machine will get closer, creating more resistance and more restriction. So I feel, I'm like, wow, this really is a lot harder. And I'm going to have to dig deeper to be able to continue this workout as I'm listening to the instructor saying, yep, we've really hit the rough patch. Okay, now it's easier. And then all of a sudden it feels easier on my end too. And so that's actually a very nascent form of starting to be able to communicate a much more difficult difficult sense, right? How could I communicate to you that actually the terrain of the water that we are supposedly rowing in right now has just changed qualitatively? And here it is now, I'm feeling it in the resistance in my own machine. That's coming. That's Actually, that's not coming, it's already here. And that's been here for a while. What's coming? is the technology that would allow me to be able to reach out and say, okay, I'm going to touch this thing. Do you feel that? And you'd say, yep, I feel that. Where do you feel that? Oh, I feel that in my left arm. Okay. Would you like a little more pressure? Sure. Let me give you a little bit more pressure. Do you feel that? Yes, I feel that. And this is coming through wearable technology. I was saying, because someone is wearing a garment that has sens has sensors in yes. it that, that's causing the pressure yes. to be experienced. Okay, thank you. Yes, it's wear it's wearable technology. So that's the connection, which is that as we're seeing more wearables with watches, you know, I'm even wearing some wearable technology right now. This is all the early iterations of it. But what's being researched in the lab is much more sophisticated. It's looking at these much more complex uh, experiences of garments and other things that actually allow for both users to interact in real time around haptics. And there's not a delay. You actually feel it as, again, based on certain assumptions, you have to make sure that you have enough uh, of, you know, bandwidth or of a, connect, of a connection to be able to transmit that information. But holding those assumptions constant for a moment, that, that actually then becomes a gateway or a doorway that actually breaks that barrier that used to be there. So that we could actually work on something, whether it's collaborative, co collaboratively, or we could actually work on the uh, example of this is in rehabilitation sciences. So in rehabilitation, I could actually put on, let's say, um, a head mounted display, which is just a, a VR thing. Think of it like goggles. I would actually be immersed in an environment. You could do the same thing. And then we could actually work 
immediately in that environment and haptics would be one medium that we could use. So I could apply some touch and you'd say, yes, I feel that touch. Is that touch okay? Is it too much? Do I need a back? Is it warm? Is it cool? So even temperature can be simulated in this. This is all that's coming and it's, it's coming um, in, you know, the next, next decade. It'll be here in terms of what we'll kind of look at and go, I didn't even know that was possible. Just like we didn't realize that Zoom was possible in the way that it is now. At one point, we didn't realize that space flight or airplanes were possible, um, or I suppose fire somewhere back there. Uh, these technologies, the haptic technologies, um, how two-way is it? So the, 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 the subject experience, that one experiences, that one into the human machine, machine, human link, experiences a sense of pressure. That is, let's just say, the yoga teacher is pressing down on the student's knuckles of their index fingers in downward-facing dog pose. And that, that student feels this pressure. Too much, too little, that can be shared uh, verbally. But does the teacher does, does the teacher sense that? Is, it, is there feedback such that the teacher senses the change in positioning or change in action of, ener- of energetic action or pressure of the student? Yes. So the haptic technology um, has the what's being looked at and investigated is looking at that. So um, just as if you were the student, you would actually receive the felt sense of that touch through the garment. Um, the teacher who would be doing the touching would feel that sensation. You know, if they're using their hand, they'd feel it in their hand. So there's actually some force resistance or temperature that's being sensed or felt. Um, so it becomes a function. It's a complex problem of being able to monitor what's happening in real time on both ends. But then actually what's being uh, devised is the ability to do that. And there's some, you can Google it for those that are interested, look up haptic garments and you'll see there are iterations. There's actually some that are now commercially available that are out there. Those are um you know, the commercially available ones are more uh, aiming to kind of get a product out, usually for gamers and other people that are interested in this early adopters. But what's being done in the labs is actually much more of this forward looking, trying to solve this complex problem so that there's meaningful um, bi-directional human interaction through the medium of haptics or touch and temperature and other things, but basically body sensation. Yeah. And this and everything else that you've mentioned will be in the show notes with links to all of what you're you're mentioning, Alex. Um, so uh, one more point about this. As we're having this conversation, we're able to see each other as though we're in Zoom. We're using a different platform here, Riverside. Um, and we're seeing each other in a sense. We're seeing each other. And I can see that you're well, kind, of, kind of smiling. I've been able to note your various facial expressions, your gesticulations, um, various aspects of, of you through my various perceptual faculties as you're expressing who you are in this moment. And in that, I can get a sense, believe it or not, of things like well, what you might be feeling. That is, I don't want to necessarily go so far as I might be intuiting something. But where I'm going with this is that I can imagine an, a quick uh, reflex objection to all of these sorts of technologies is, what about that realm of 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 the sort of ineffable human intuitive sense of others of experience in life um how how do these technologies what's your sense of how they might relate to matters of intuitive awareness and connection yeah i it's a again it's a it's a really important question to reflect on and i would say that um I too have been 
surprised and my own stubborn assumptions challenged uh, in this domain. I, um, I, there's a teacher and a community that I practice with regularly, and I have been shocked at the experience of what I would call the palpable field of being on Zoom with everyone in this retreat, um, exploring these uh, very ancient teachings on intuitive awareness or this sort of, um, you know, uh, this mystery of consciousness. And I have been moved, profoundly moved by the sense of uh, connection in what I could only describe in my own subjective, limited experience as a felt sense for the field of all of us practicing together. And the first time that I felt this over Zoom, I thought, no, this can't be, this can't be accurate. I can't have, you know, as teachers, we can often talk about being able to read the room or feel what's in the field, that sense of something that goes beyond just our own experience, extending into a larger collective. And yet, I, just as you're pointing to right now, I think it's possible um, in this realm of technology more than we may like to admit. Um, and it's also, um, there's a, another aspect of this, which several students have reflected back to me, which I think is so powerful. There are many students that say, I actually feel so much more comfortable uh, interacting with teachers in a Zoom space because it levels the playing field. It's not like the teacher is just sitting up there, you know, on uh, the, wherever it is because they're sitting up on the little platform or DS because they're visible to everyone in the room and then they can, you know, every, all eyes on the teachers. The fact that it's a flat medium and that we're all in our respective spaces, I actually feel more regulated. I feel more safe. I feel there's less power dynamics. So really interesting things that come up and that are reflected uh, back in this space. And again, I would point it to, um, I don't want to make a hierarchy here. I don't want to say that online is better than in-person or that in-person is better than online. I want to think about this as a spectrum and looking at the spectrum and saying, what is going to provide the most access points, the most opportunities um, for what I consider to be everyone's birthright, right? This aspect of being able to really um, live into these questions and to uh, explore the mystery of, of being a sentient being. As a sentient being, I'm open to possibilities. I like to think of myself sometimes as a possibilist. That, and, and very much I appreciate how certain technologies can be empowering for people who are in some difficult situations, whether they are in so the far reaches of a, of a, of a, of a you know, remote region, if they are uh, due to physiological conditions, health conditions, stuck in a, in a bed or locked in a prison or so, in other situations where they don't have what I'll suggest is sort of the luxury and the beauty of direct human interaction. I am going to uh, – I do have a hierarchy in my own sense of it, Alex. That is, I do prefer direct human interaction. I'm presently pivoting back towards doing more in-person teaching in the wake or not the wake and at this stage where we are with the pandemic and other forces in society in the world today that are pushing people or inspiring or motivating people to be more isolated in their homes and then connecting through technologies. I'm fascinated by what you're doing. I'm hopeful of this technology for creating stronger bridges across these various divides of better connecting people and I'm a big fan of direct human interaction and am still sensing that there's something that technology doesn't, at least not yet, begin to capture about direct human interaction. 
There are other aspects of technology that I think are super helpful for yoga teachers and students alike, and that is how they share information and access information. This is a little bit of a segue to your work with Offering Tree. Uh, Public Benefit Corporation, uh, out there as a platform, many have probably not heard of it. Uh, it's been around for a few years now, but no less, they might be new to them. Please tell us about Offering Tree and what Offering Tree is offering. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, we are a public benefit corporation. And just to define what that means, uh, it means that we need to have uh, a net positive impact on society based on whatever our core mission uh, is. And so for Offering Tree as a company, our core mission was to provide greater access and education around wellness. Um, and that's really, that's at the heart of our DNA. So we have to report on that um, to the state every year about how we've done uh, in fulfilling that public benefit mission. So the, the offering tree, um, actually, it, it's so connected to what we're talking about. It, its origin story comes out of uh, this challenge of recognizing um, uh, the expectation of technology um, at the intersection of community. And so I was working as a manager at a, um, a donation-based yoga studio here locally. And they knew that their paper-based system that they were using, they were using pen and paper, you know, filling out the waiver forms and, you know, taking cash and the donation box when people came in, that it actually wasn't working because many of the students were coming in and say, how do I sign up for your classes? Like online, I don't want to have to come in and queue in a line every single time. And I want to be able to like, look at your calendar and see who's teaching when and be able to book all this and see availability in the class. And I don't know if it's a busy or not busy. So they were getting all this feedback from the community and they realized, okay, we need to actually listen to what our community is asking for. And uh, they went with uh, technology. They rolled out um, you know, the kind of main, one of the main platforms out there. And it was just a disaster because what happened was the teacher was now uh, spending all of their time working with technology. So technology was in the foreground and human relationships were now in the background. They were they, like, I can't get this thing to check in. I'm getting an error message. I don't know why this is working. And so this long queue of students and they were looking at a tablet rather than making eye contact with the students. So exact opposite of, you know, technology uh, at its best. It's technology at its worst in that moment. The owners had enough um, courage to pull the plug and say, this doesn't work. And so they turned to me and they said, you know something about technology, you know? Well, what do you think about this? And I said, well... I, I know a lot about technology. I'm interested, but I'm not actually a builder of technology. Let me talk to the builders that I know. And so I went and talked to, um, you know, three of my really good friends and said, here's the challenge. There's a yoga studio that is uh, trying to build community. They want to really emphasize human relationship. And they just tried to roll this thing out. And it was a disaster. Do you think you can solve this? And they said, Yeah. I think we can solve it, but I think this is a bigger problem than probably just this one studio. And so then we interviewed about a hundred different teachers um, and we interviewed some small studios and we just listened and we kept hearing the same things over and over and over. And remind, just remind all the listeners, this was before COVID. And so we were listening and we were hearing all these different pain points and we said, okay, that's what we're going to do. So Offering Tree set out to design technology that would let you um, teach and run a studio and really focus on the student, the client, the human relationship and let technology be in the background. So the best metaphor is that, you know, when you're in your apartment or in your house, you turn the light on, you want to know that the light's just going to work. You don't want to think about the wiring and the, you know, you don't want to have to take off the light switch and go digging in there to figure out oh, why isn't my light working. And 
it's the same way. Offering tree is attempting to be sort of the wiring or the plumbing that you don't want to work with unless, you know, you're passionate about plumbing or electrical you know, engineering. Uh, you want to trust that somebody else is handling for that. And you want to have the confidence that it works, that when you turn on the faucet or turn on the light, it's just there. And it helps you to live in your house more comfortably. It helps to facilitate your life. And that's what Offering Tree is aiming at. And so what it does is it takes all these different services like building a website, uh, scheduling your classes, you know, being able to send out a Zoom link, uh, being able to do emails and newsletters and, you know, marketing and uh, being able to do online classes and coursework and being able to have memberships and packages. It takes all those different things and it puts it together into one place and says, here it is. And this will help empower you as a studio or a teacher so that the technology is in the background and what's being foregrounded is your passion as a teacher and a student. And so that's where I, I know I'll just allude to this for a minute. I had sent you an article a long time ago about this um, talk from uh, Fred, Fred Brooks in computer science, and he makes this distinction between technology that is intelligence amplifying versus artificial intelligence. So I'm not trying, you know, offering tree is not trying to build something that is a machine that imitates a human, right? It's actually trying to say, let's take everything that you do as a teacher in a studio and amplify that so that you don't have to spend as much energy and time doing these things that actually aren't the highest value. The highest value is to have you be a teacher in your role as teacher, not to have you spending hours trying to solve technological problems that you probably in your wildest dreams didn't sign up for when you were going through teacher training and yet nobody talks about so and thus offering she was born and uh our listeners will be able to find this again in the show notes is offering tree.com there are a, a variety of resources there. i do encourage our listeners to check it out if you are a yoga teacher or a yoga student you might wish your teachers to adopt this to uh, help them be more efficient and humanistic in their interactions with you as you come to uh, to class as and, and so um i'm wondering what are you presently focused on alex what's present what's on your plate right now and maybe what's in your immediate future with your work a lot of my work these days is um focusing on an, on an actually an aspect that um we haven't quite we've we've touched on pieces yet, but haven't quite fully um, uh, touched on yet, which is um, access and equity. So everything that I've said so far, there's an assumption in what I've said that you actually have the means um, and uh, the luxury to connect. And we've kind of both alluded to this a little bit and are both back and forth in comments. But a lot of my focus these days is looking at being able to bridge that gap. So it's it's a privilege to be able to be on you know this um, technology with you to know that I have a stable internet connection to know that I have, you know, electricity running through my house that allows me to, to do this podcast with you today. But all of that is a privilege. And it's also something that not everyone in the world, um, has access to. And so a lot of, uh, my work is working with colleagues and community members and partners to find ways to, uh, provide, um, uh, access and um, meaningful, and I would even, again, this may be a little controversial, I would say ethical ways of looking at technology as opposed to, let me just throw you an iPad because I want to increase my iPad sales. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of, um, <laughs> that's a whole other topic we could talk about, about um, persuasive technology and things. Um, but there's a whole lot uh, that is 
baked into what I'm interested in, but it also means that we need to challenge some of my own assumptions um, and look at, take a hard look about, you know, what's actually uh, reality out in the world and who who's included in the conversation and who's not included and who needs to be brought into the conversation. So finding ways to make everything more accessible, more equitable. Uh, it's wonderful to hear that that's a part of what you're, you're doing, Alex. Uh, it's a privilege, speaking of privilege, to to have conversation with you. I really very much appreciate you taking some time out of your, your busy life, your busy day, and having this conversation. I want to thank you for being here and look forward to learning more with you, more from you in the coming period of time in our lives. And just, again, just really a deep bows for someone who is um, translating, crossing those bridges, connecting people on different sides of divides. It's something that we need more of in our world today. Well, thank you, Mark. It's It's been a delight, and um, I'm so appreciative that you asked me to be here today. So thank you also for your time. Uh, and uh, just uh, I'll say that um, I, always, I always like to say this at the end, that if anything I've shared or said uh, just didn't really resonate, didn't land, or doesn't feel true in your own experience, then please leave it here with me and only take what you find true and useful in your own experience. Um, as I said at the very beginning, um, I am very much also a work in progress, and so I, I welcome uh, feedback and an ongoing dialogue because that's part of the sort of learning community, how we all learn together. So, uh, again, just thank you so much. I really appreciate um, being here, and I hope that something I shared today was useful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Please see the show notes for links and resources from today's show, as well as links to our sponsors of this episode. If you're enjoying or learning from the Yoga Room podcast, please tell your friends and others who might be interested. And you can also subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you never miss anything. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please rate and review the show to support us in sharing healthy practices and engaging ideas from around the world. And again, thank you for joining us today.